I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with novelist and classicist Madeline Miller as we mix into our conversation a few excerpts from the captivating talk she gave at the 2019 Sun Valley Writers' Conference. As her many readers will know, both of Madeline's best-selling novels, The Song of Achilles, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction, and Circe, are set within the mythological literary landscape of ancient Greek gods, men, and now, with the unforgettable Circe, women. So now it's my pleasure to welcome Madeline Miller. Hi, Madeline. How are you? Hi, John. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me on. I am really happy to be talking to you. My stock in my house has just gone way up with my wife and son. So uh, I owe you for that, among many other things. It's really great to hear your voice. Oh, we, we miss you. Uh, we miss you too. So I've been looking forward to this for a long time, just to sit down and then to revisit both the Song of Achilles and Circe and to go back and listen to the two talks you gave at Sun Valley, which were so memorable. And before Circe and the Odyssey, the subject of your most recent book, the Iliad begins, if I'm correct, in the middle of a pandemic. Am I right? Yes, it does. Yep. All good epics begin in medias race, or rather not all good epics, but all ancient epics begin in medias race in the middle of things. And so not only does the story of the Iliad begin in the middle of things, but it begins actually in the middle of a pandemic. It's one of the things that, you know, I, I'm always sort of feeling like there are resonances between the ancient world and the modern world. And as a classicist, I feel like I see those all the time. But this one is really on the nose because the Iliad kicks off with an argument about the fact that Agamemnon, the Greek overgeneral of the of the Greek forces, has offended the god Apollo and 
brought down an epidemic upon the Greek host. And then he has completely ignored what's going on. And so the first scene of the Iliad is the warrior Achilles confronting Agamemnon about his execrable leadership during the pandemic. And Agamemnon, who's very defensive, immediately sort of lashes out at Achilles. And that argument between those two men over how a pandemic is being handled is the beginning of the Iliad. So it's really, um, I feel like Homer is with us more than ever. <laughs> that, that is really true. I, I don't know if there's a Dr. Fauci character, but I'm sure you will add one. <laughs> <laughs> as we go forward. But this brings to mind, I know something that you believe and, and live every day, which is the extraordinary relevance of Homeric stories to our time. And uh, obviously, as we inhabit right now, a country that is as divided almost as during the Civil War, it must raise in your mind questions of that relevancy. And, and I wonder what it is you find in those stories of ancient Greece that seem as or more relevant than any contemporary stories you might imagine and why you're so drawn to them. Yes. I mean, I, I feel like that there's always something that we can pull from the ancient world. And, and you know, sometimes the parallels are, are not exact because, of course, culture has changed and technology has changed. But I think sometimes it can be very depressing, actually, if I'm being really honest, to look back and to say, oh my gosh, we are still struggling with these same things that we have been struggling with for 3,000 years or more. Mm -hmm. And here are the records of who is silenced, the records of women being pushed to the side, of division, of rage, of pride, of um, manipulative politicians. All these things are, are things that are still coming up and up and up. But it can also be comforting in a way, because I, I think looking back at these stories, you realize that we are not the first generation that has struggled with them and that hopefully there can be a path forward um, and there, there can be a way forward. The ancients used to have sort of two sayings that I, I think of. One is nothing new under the sun. And the other is that, you know, this too shall pass. And I think that history has showed us that things do pass. But I would also add that sometimes we have to be part of making them pass and we have to do the work that that isn't just something passive <laughs> that happens um, like a natural law is something that we make happen. Yeah, it's so true. And I've been struck by something you've said before about how these stories from ancient times, uh, they're incredibly human and that they allow us to make connections, you know, and to each other to reach out across divides, even when we sometimes are feeling most alone. And that reminds me, of course, of not only the political divisions in this country, but living during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, too, of um, something you spoke about in one of your talks at Sun Valley, which was the beginning of the Aeneid and mm -hmm. a description of, of the arrival um, at Carthage. And I'm wondering if if you could just very briefly recount that and what these people who are fleeing their sacked city finally find and what it makes them feel. Absolutely. So the, the beginning of the Aeneid really 
couldn't be more present with us because it's about the Trojan refugees after the city of Troy has been utterly destroyed by the Greeks, burned down to the ground, the women and children taken as slaves, all the men killed, and then there's this small band, these remnants, who were able to flee from the city as it burned around them, carrying whatever they had, whatever they were able to grab in their hands, leaving all kinds of people and things behind. And this small band of people led by Aeneas cast off into the waves to try to find a new, a new home. And it's a very frightening thing because you never know who you're going to find and whether or not you're going to be welcome. And they do a lot of searching and they meet with a lot of hardship. And at last, there's this terrible, terrible storm that scatters them. And Aeneas lands with his ship on a unknown shore. And he decides to go find someone who lives here to see if possibly he might be able to to get some help. But of course, he's terrified because this could easily be a hostile land who is going to kill him and his band. So he goes looking and he comes to the top of a hill and he looks down and he sees a beautiful city, the city of Carthage, which is being born right before his eyes. He sees the theater and he sees the Senate house and he sees all these happy citizens building and building and he feels this deep pang because he he wishes he was building his city, that he also had a place. And as he's looking and admiring the beauty of Carthage around him, he sees a temple and on the doors of the temple, is a beautiful sort of, you know, frieze that is depicting the story of the Trojan War, the story of his people and their terrible loss, the story of Hector and Priam, of Achilles and Agamemnon, of their whole history. And seeing that, he begins to weep because someone here knows his story someone here is bearing witness to who he is and his identity. And and to me, that is just so powerful in terms of how stories can be used to just recognize another person's experience. That in that recognition, just in telling his story and in coming someplace and saying, you know, these people know me here. Someone here believes in my story. Someone here has wept for my pain. How moving and how healing that is. And how stories, I think, really carry that with them. That if we can tell the story of something, we can begin to heal. And then if someone else can hear our story, then we can begin to heal. It's, it's incredibly moving and, and healing and, and also inspiring for everybody and for writers, for artists, because, of course, what are they looking at but art there on the sides of those buildings? Yeah. And so these stories, of course, so lasting and so moving and in many cases adventurous and horrific. Nonetheless, their largest cast of characters, their central figures uh, are almost always men. White men of a certain kind, uh, heroes of a certain kind. And I know that as we talk about the relevance uh, of Homer, it touches on another question that is incredibly important to you and to many, and that you've been exploring in your work from the beginning. And that is questions of sort of, as you referred it to me the other day, um, narrative justice and injustice. So whose stories have been suppressed and kept out, silenced? Who gets to tell those stories and why? Yeah. How other voices might be liberated through an act of, of narrative justice? And 
I wonder how, as we make our segue now to Circe, how prevalent was that in your thinking as you first began to think about the stories you were going to set in the ancient world? In the Song of Achilles, the protagonist is Patroclus, mm-hmm. um, who is not much heard from at all in the Iliad, but is Achilles' most intimate friend and possibly lover. And then, of course, in Circe, there's this figure who, again, is a character in the Odyssey, but is certainly not central. It's not her story. Was this something that was always in your mind and a way that you connected it in your own mind to how relevant or not relevant it was to our time? You know, absolutely. It was something that these ideas of, you know, narrative justice, I I think were really with me from almost my very first experiences with classics, because on one hand, I fell head over heels for these stories. I absolutely loved them. I could not get enough of them. I wanted to study them. I wanted to breathe them. And at the same time, I was noticing that This was a very small segment of the population that was telling these stories. These were aristocratic men with very, very few exceptions who were telling these wonderful pieces of poetry and that very often the stories themselves centered on aristocratic men. And, you know, I couldn't help but notice that the women in the stories were often pushed to the side. The slaves in the stories were were pushed to the side and, and that, you know, we were getting this amazing story, but at the edges seething were all these stories that were not being told, that were being silenced, that were being overlooked, that were being ignored. And one of the things that I, I think is so interesting is that when we look at the Odyssey, The Odyssey is this incredibly moving story of nostos, of homecoming. That's the Greek word for homecoming, where Odysseus does all, you know, suffers so much, endures so much, but is able finally to have his nostos, his homecoming. And at the same time that that serves as one of the overarching themes of the Odyssey, we have these sort of stories that are kind of in the background of all these slave characters who are instrumental to helping Odysseus come back and retake his kingdom um, and sort of retake his place. And yet these slaves are denied their nostos. They will never have nostos again in their life. They've been taken from their home and forced into slavery to serve Odysseus's nostos. And so even as the overarching theme is Odysseus's return home, underneath it, just waiting there, is the fact that homecoming is denied to all these people who are part of his story. So I feel like that those things are always there at the edges of these stories. And I love kind of cracking open the world a little bit and giving room, kind of moving the camera over to those stories. And so when I was looking at Song of Achilles, And Circe, that was absolutely a piece of it. And with Song of Achilles, what I was looking at is is the relationship between Achilles and his closest friend, and in some versions, lover, Patroclus. Mm -hmm. And the interpretation of Achilles and Patroclus as lovers was very well established in the ancient world. It wasn't the only interpretation, but it it was well established. But in the modern world, that wasn't getting talked about. And I really sort of started writing Song of Achilles as a reaction to the fact that why aren't we talking about this? You Mm -hmm. know, the ancients absolutely accepted this. Plato talked about them as lovers. Aeschylus referenced them as lovers. So why are we afraid to talk about it? So that was sort of, again, there's that, that narrative justice. And then with Circe, of course, this incredibly strong, interesting female character who had been 
basically just cast only as a cameo in Odysseus's story <laughs> and, you know, yes. having to be tamed within his story. So to me, narrative justice is, is really important. And sometimes if you write, you know, if you just say, well, we have to pay attention to this story, it's not as engaging. I mean, we humans are so story driven. And so the best way to get people to pay attention is to make a story about it. Always was, always will be. So having been brought to Circe, who never had her own book before until you, I want to begin from the excerpts from your talk at Sun Valley with how you began, and which is a little reading from the book Circe, which brings us right into her voice and I think will be a great introduction. So with that, let's take a listen to this. I'm actually going to start with just a very, very short reading from the book. And I always like to do that because, of course, Homer, who is my inspiration, um, is coming out of oral tradition. And the Iliad and the Odyssey, when they were originally experienced by ancient audiences, were heard. These were songs that were sung and performed, and audiences would come and listen to them. It was only later that they became such an experience on the page as well. So when I write, I do a lot of reading out loud with both this and Song of Achilles, because I want the works to have sort of an oral presence, just as Homer does. So... Um, Circe in mythology is most famous for her appearance in Homer's Odyssey, where she turns Odysseus's men into pigs. So this is a little pig section here. Um, Odysseus is the he in this section. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it. I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them, buried deep as last year's bulbs growing fat their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall when my lions were gone and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them, scrabbling and crying in the sty, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men use to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs. They do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere on anything, scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies, but they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now that we've had a chance to hear Circe a bit in her own words, your words, could you tell us more about her? Before I came to the book, she was just a name, a chapter, 
uh, seen through Odysseus's eyes in the Odyssey. But she's such a complex character. I mean, who was she really in the world of Greek mythology? What powers, strengths, and weaknesses did she have? And, and what stories and writers spoke of her? Sure. One of the pleasures of working with Circe is actually that there isn't that much about her. Everyone makes a lot about the pig story, but the pig story is actually also kind of unexplored. And, and one of the gaps that I really wanted to work with is why is Circe turning men into pigs, which is never addressed in Homer at all. It's sort of treated in later works as like, well, because she's evil, because she's a woman, you know. But no one ever really dives into why would someone start doing this pretty extreme thing and how would they get that kind of power? I was also really interested. So in the Odyssey, we just have this bare bones description of she lives on the island of Aiaia. She has tame lions and wolves that surround her. She is the daughter of the sun god Helios, and she is also a witch. So I really wanted to work a lot with sort of what it meant to be a witch as opposed to a goddess, because one of the things that you can see is that in the world of Greek mythology, she's one of the lesser, lesser goddesses. She's a nymph. She's basically the bottom of the barrel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're a nymph, you don't get to use your divine powers very much because they're so limited and they can be pretty much overruled by any of the major gods around you. But yet... When we see Circe in the Odyssey, the god Hermes is there, and he's clearly a little intimidated by her. So I thought, well, how did a nymph, the lowest of the low, end up being able to kind of hold her own on this island surrounded by lions and wolves? And the answer, as Homer tells us, is witchcraft. So I did sort of a, a big dive into what it meant to be a witch, into her witch power. And what kept coming up is that witch power and divine power are kind of opposites. That divine power is the snap your fingers and it happens, mm -hmm. whereas witchcraft comes out of understanding herbs, mixing potions, knowing when you have to dig up a plant, knowing you know the words you have to say and how you have to work it. And basically, it comes out of experience, hard work, passion, skill, trial and error. And so the more I thought about witchcraft, the more I thought, my gosh, this is an art. This is not only you know, this is a metaphor for any sort of creative endeavor. That's really and as soon as I, I realized that, yeah, I, I began to thinking, you know, my Cersei is an artist. It isn't just about, you know, she's a witch, but that witchcraft is, is an art. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was sort of a big piece. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I mean, and what, did you realize that she had the potential to be so important in a way that she could grow as much as you could imagine her growing? in a sense, into her own story? You know, I did. And I think some of that, again, goes back to Homer, that one of the interesting things about her depiction in Homer is that she is very frightening and menacing in the first part of the story. But in the second part of the story, she and Odysseus kind of come to this understanding, and then she offers him and his men hospitality for a year, which they desperately need. They are exhausted physically and emotionally. They've lost um, 11 of their 12 ships. They are just totally, you know, at the end of their rope. There's a god who hates them, the god Poseidon. And so she kind of steps in and rescues them. And they stay with her for an entire year. And when they leave, she sends them off with the best possible advice and full stores. So I was really interested in the fact that even in Homer, we can see this double side of her, that she is benevolent, but she 
is also frightening, you know, that she is a healer, but she can also be a destroyer. So I felt like even just within the Homeric episode, I was being invited to give her a full range of personality um, because we see her really do both. Although usually that benevolent side is what has been forgotten in later versions. She usually is remembered as a villain. So I was kind of excited that in writing this full personality, I was also, you know, the classics part of me loved that I felt like I was going back to the original. Yeah. And it is part of Homer's genius to leave that room around the minor characters as well. Yes. That you can fill in, in a sense, because they're such complicated figures in how they're suggested. So in in Song of Achilles, you wrote about the Trojan War through the eyes of Patroclus, as we said. Achilles, let's call him his lover. And so reading that book, I found to be, it's, it's like exploring some previously unmapped, imagined tributary of the Iliad, which of course, the Iliad, of course, in its own way, was, is a prelude for the story of Odysseus in the Odyssey. But before Odysseus and the Greek army can set off, you know, on their very long journeys home, the endless, absolutely horrific Trojan War has to finally end. Mm-hmm. So can you just give us a snapshot of the very end of that war, just how things were on the eve of the Greeks' departure for home before we make our transition then to Odysseus and on to Circe? Sure. So the Iliad itself actually is such an interesting work because it covers a a very short period of time in the war. It begins with Sing Goddess of the Destructive Rage of Achilles. And then we sort of see the rise of that rage and how Achilles' rage plays out. Originally, Achilles' rage is directed at Agamemnon for insulting him in public. But when the Trojan prince Hector kills his beloved Patroclus, then the rage is now transferred to the Trojans and to Hector himself. So Achilles, in that full rage, kills Hector, but killing Hector is not enough. His vengeance is not satisfied. His grief is still so raw. And then he drags famously Hector's body around and around the walls of Troy in view of Hector's family, King Priam, Queen Hecuba, who are standing on the walls. And so what is so amazing is that we get to this really unbelievable moment of inhumanity. And interestingly enough, when he is acting most inhuman, he is acting most like a god. <laughs> Homer mm-hmm. tells us that, <laughs> you know, he, he is acting in this, you know, with this incredible cruelty and selfishness and sort of hugeness of emotion. And then this amazing thing happens in the Iliad which is that after, you know, days of dragging the body of Hector around, mutilating it in front of his family, refusing to give it to his family for burial, which was a huge thing in the ancient world, because if the body was not properly burned and buried, then the soul would never be at peace. So finally, King Priam decides, I'm going to go speak to him myself. And under cover of darkness, with a little help from the gods, he sneaks into the Greek camp and into Achilles' tent, and he throws himself on Achilles' mercy. And he says, please, I know you're so angry, but give me back my son's body. And it is this unbelievable moment, because of course, Achilles could kill him, kill Priam, and, and you know, end the war right there, maybe. But what Priam does is he appeals to Achilles as a son. And he he urges him to think about his own father, 
back in Thea, where Achilles is from. And he makes this incredibly human, basic connection. You know, he was my son. You are a son. I am a father. Think of your father. And he kisses Achilles' hands and he says, I have done something which no man has done. I have kissed the hands of the man who murdered my child. Mm. And it is just this incredible moment where we're sort of waiting, what is Achilles going to do? And Achilles relents. He feels mercy. He feels pity. And he has the body washed and treated with respect and given back to Priam. And so the Iliad ends on this incredible moment of closing where Achilles releases his rage gives the body back to Priam, and it actually ends with the funeral rites of Hector. So there's closure. Yes. It ends with, yes, there's grief, there's sadness, Hector is dead. We can't bring that back, but at least we can have peace with his death and we can have peace for his soul. And so in that sense, the Iliad is really remarkable, ending on this moment of closure and and mercy and coming together two people who you think could never come together. And, you know, you think that Achilles can never release his rage, but when he's confronted with Priam's deep humanity, he's able to do it. It certainly sounds like a book that every single person in America should read right now. Yeah. I mean, this, one of the most violent books in the history of literature and yet ends in this very human, intimate way. And so we end the Iliad there, and then there's this leap to the Odyssey. And the Greeks, there's another story, of course, which is the Greeks take the city, and we know what the taking of a city Mm. meant in those days. It was absolutely horrific. But they finally head off. Let's take a listen to second excerpt from your talk, which is going to take us as Odysseus and the Greeks leave finally Troy on their journeys home. But of course, those journeys don't go quite as planned. So let's take a listen to this one. Two years later, Odysseus is still not home. All the other Greek kings and princes and captains have made it home, but he has not. And in that time, he has lost 11 of his 12 ships. All those men made it all the way through the Trojan War, but getting home, he loses 11 out of 12 ships. This is so many people. He just has his own ship left. And he has seen these men die in the most brutal and horrifying ways imaginable, eaten by the Cyclops, um, who literally belches out their limbs. I mean, you know, torn apart by cannibals, dashed on rocks, just horror after horror. So when he lands on this lush and beautiful island. He is grieving. He's exhausted. He's at a very, very low point, as are all his men. And then here they are on this mysterious, beautiful place. So Odysseus goes and explores a little bit, and he sees a little bit of smoke drifting above the trees. He thinks, okay, someone lives here. I want to go find out who it is. Maybe they can help us, or maybe we can steal from them. Um, If you have read the Odyssey, you know Odysseus is basically just a glorified pirate. He's constantly interested in getting more stuff. Um, And in fact, that's why he gets into trouble in the Cyclops' cave in the first place. He goes there with his men, and they're looking around, and his men are like, everything here is really big. I think we should go. Um, And he's like, no, no, they're going to give us a great present. Let's stay. Um, So that whole episode where his men are killed, that's all him. That's his fault. Um, So he sends a group of men out, and they go and they find this beautiful and palatial home. And outside the home, there's a garden, and in the garden, there are these tame lions and wolves just 
hanging out. They're a little disturbed by this, but they continue on to the door, and they're greeted by a beautiful goddess who says, come in, let me give you hospitality, let me give you food and wine. Turns out she has drugged the wine. As soon as they consume it, she casts her magical spell, turns them into pigs, and drives them out to her sty. <laughs> One of the men has held back, presumably tipped off by the lions and wolves, and he goes running back to tell Odysseus, you know, they've all, she's turned them all into pigs. And so Odysseus now has to go confront Circe. And he heads up to confront her, and on the way he's stopped by the great god of travelers and the great trickster god, who is actually also an ancestor of Odysseus's. Um, you can kind of see their relationship and their tricky blood. Um, Hermes. And Hermes says, this Circe is actually quite a powerful witch, so I'm going to give you some herbs that will make you immune to her spell. So armed with these herbs, Odysseus goes to confront Circe. And this was the moment as a 13-year-old that I was on the edge of my seat for. Because I thought, you know, this is going to be such a great scene. He's smart and complicated. She's smart and complicated. We're going to get a great sort of banter back and forth. Wit, you know, finally there's someone who can stand up to Odysseus. But what actually happens if you've read the scene, is that she gives him the drugged wine, he drinks it, she tries to turn him into a pig, it doesn't work. And then he pulls his sword on her and threatens her. And she screams and falls to her knees and begs for mercy and invites him into her bed in one breath. <laughs> and I was really mad, honestly. That was my reaction. I felt incredibly frustrated. And I thought, what? What just happened? We, she was, what? You know, how can, that be, how can that be what happens in that moment? Can't we just keep the camera on her a little bit longer? Do we have to literally put her on her knees in front of Odysseus? The phallic sword did not escape my notice, even at 13. Um, you know, why does it have to be that she has to be immediately shrunk down to serve his story? And, you know, I understood even then that this is, he's the hero, it's his story, she's an obstacle, he has to overcome her. But I felt this incredible frustration with that. So I love that entire description. And, you know, it takes us right back, of course, to that question of narrative justice or injustice that we started with. I mean, who gets, whose stories get told? You're uh, totally understandable frustration with that depiction of Circe just falling right into bed with the, with the wily Odysseus. So you say, uh, enough of that. I'm going to write my own version of Circe and which will be, you know, a version of her story. She's front and center. But this brings me to, I guess it's a question of process, but maybe it's just more of uh, the imaginative adventure of, uh, of, of, of being a writer. But how do you, how did you then from that point on, uh, how do you start? How do you start to build out that world? Um, what particular details? You, you talked about her, uh, her being a witch, but um, I know that... Um, she had other certain qualities and details that surprised you that began to kind of lead you in different directions. And how did you build out this entire world that is the novel of Circe? Homer tells us that she is the dread goddess who speaks like a human. And that word, speaking like a human, it's one word in the Greek, audeasa, was really 
instrumental for me. And so my brain immediately, my novelist brain, immediately started moving. Well, if she speaks like a human, then that would really put her at odds with her divine background. You know, when the gods speak in the ancient world, if a god speaks to a human, the human's hair stands on end and their blood runs cold Mm -hmm. and, you know, you fall to your knees. And if it's a really powerful god and they don't shield you from their power, then you might incinerate. I mean, it's that level of like earth-shaking voice. So what would it be like as Circe to, you know, grow up among those epic creatures who can shake the world with their voices, but to speak like one of us? So now I'm bringing in sort of her psychology and I'm thinking, well, you would be an outcast because the gods value power above all. And you would sort of never really belong to either the world of gods or humans. You would always be straddling the two worlds. And so it would make you an outsider. And outsiders are always really interesting characters to write about because they have wonderful perspectives on the worlds that they don't quite belong to. Yep. So, you know, it was things like that. I would sort of take a detail from her story, a detail that really spoke to me. And then I would try to give it real psychological background. I would say, okay, let's accept this as fact. What would be the implications of it psychologically? How would that develop over the course of a lifetime? And so that one word in the Greek ended up giving me kind of the structure of the whole novel because I saw her moving away from the world of the gods and towards the world of humans. And it also gave me like one of her key personality characteristics, which is that Circe is a character with a lot of empathy and her ability to speak like a human and her ability to have empathy to me were the same thing. And so all of that kind of grew out of that one word. So that's kind of my process is that I find those little bits and I really do battle with them. (laughs) And then I see what I have. (laughs) It's so true. And, you know, it's almost as though the end product of that dialogue or that argument or whatever, which is the novel itself becomes the connection point from the gods to the humans. Yeah. I mean, the book leads us into the human yeah. by describing the god in a more human way. So, I mean, many things I, I really admire about both you and your work is how you've really boldly carved out your own fictional path in, I guess I would say, the imaginative shadow of the Greek heroes at the center of Homer's epics. And the nature of heroes as they were and how you've both use that as inspiration, but never let it be an obstacle to the people that you wanted to write about. And you spoke wonderfully also about this uh, and that literary challenge in that talk at Sun Valley. So here's just a a final clip uh, from that talk about that. Let's take a listen. Part of what I love about the ancient Greek heroes is how flawed they are and how they're allowed to be sort of, you know, to make terrible mistakes. I mean, Odysseus and Achilles cause destruction pretty much wherever they go. And so I wanted Circe to be able to make mistakes, to have that same scope, and to have to live with the consequences of those mistakes. And Circe is much more interested than they are in sort of trying to make things right. But to keep that ability for her to be flawed felt really important. On top of that, Ovid also gave me this other really important piece that ended up kind of connecting to what I was thinking about with Homer, which is that Ovid describes her as having an ingenium an inborn quality that is more fitted for love than other gods. And that was really interesting to me. Um, Now, he means romantic love, but immediately in my novelist's brain, I'm thinking that's the same thing as speaking like a human. 
To me, those things are the same. And immediately I see this connection that Circe is born with the ability to feel empathy, which gods cannot feel for the most part. Now, if you know the ancient myths, you know that the gods are basically horrendous. They are only interested in themselves. They're completely petty, totally impulsive. If you make them angry, they will punish, you know, not only you, but your children and your children's children and their children, like on down through the centuries until the fates or some other god makes them stop. And they will just, you know, all they care about is their own pleasure and their own desire. Sometimes they can be helpful if they like you, but if you make them angry, forget it. It's over. And so, you know, thinking about that, what would it be like to grow up with a family like that? <laughs> what would it be like to, to grow up surrounded by what we would call today sociopathic narcissists? <laughs> and, and to feel like that's not me, I wanna be somewhere else. And so part of what I love about these stories, I mentioned how human they are, but also just how, how real they feel. That when you think about the Odyssey in terms of real life, and you, you know, yes, there are six-headed monsters, yes, there are gods, but really the Odyssey is the story of this exhausted war veteran who is desperate to get home to his family. And then what happens when he gets there and how it's not as easy as he thinks it's going to be to re-enter his old life. And I think that is a story that is a timeless story. And so with Circe, I was sort of wanted to keep that realness. You know, yes, she's a witch and a goddess, but she is also someone who was born into this abusive family who is trying to get out and trying to figure out, can I get out? What is the cost of getting out? And how do I build myself? I have absolutely no models. How do I build myself from the ground up? Is it, is it possible? And so keeping that focus on the human. And I think in some ways that's an experience that we all have. Hopefully we don't have families like Cersei's. But um, one of the things that I think is true about childhood is that childhood is kind of like growing up in these secluded halls or on an island, that you grow up there and everything on that island is all you know. And so you take it for the whole world. And at some point, you get on a boat and you sail away and you start meeting other people and maybe you visit their islands for dinner and you, you know, go off to college and you look back and you get perspective on your family and you suddenly think, that thing my family does is really weird. Why did they do that? Or, you know, oh, that's really, wow, I, my family handles that really nicely or my family is super dysfunctional. Um, whatever it is that you feel, that sort of experience of, of going away and getting perspective and looking back is something that, you know, Circe experiences in kind of a, a more epic fashion, but I think it's something that, that unites us all. So that was something I wanted to explore as well, how we construct identity sort of with our family as ourselves, as part of our family, how we do all that. So in a way... You're speaking, as we did at the beginning, of that extraordinary relevance of Homer and those stories of ancient Greece to our times now. But now it's almost in an emotional sense. And, I mean, for instance, that, that sense of Circe's island, of each myth, of childhood, as you suggest, of being, you know, as you said, like the whole world. And also those themes that you return to again and again in both your books of the kind of PTSD. Hmm. Uh, that all human beings carry with us from childhood, whatever kind of childhood we may have had, and how we might regenerate our empathy as we grow through encounters with others. So I guess I'm left wondering, almost jealously, I suppose, how, as you go about your life, and I know you and your family, and there you are living in Pennsylvania, the very heart of the final decider of the presidential election, um, right in the center of America, you could say. And you have all of this 
reading inside of you, all of this knowledge. How often do you think about these stories and Homer and all of it in your lives as a mother, a writer, a wife, a daughter? Does it really feel like it's with you all the time? Mm, mm. Um, you know, I really feel like I do, actually. And it's wonderful because I feel like I get to live with all these stories packed into my brain. There certainly is one I've been thinking about a lot recently. And, and my heart, as you know, I love Homer so much. And I could spend my whole life inside his poetry or this poetry, since we don't actually know if Homer was a person. But I always come back in the end to Virgil and Virgil's Aeneid, because Virgil is... I think one of the great humanists of the ancient world and his theme is mercy and over and over again in the Aeneid he tells us to choose mercy and to choose kindness and he sees human emotions of hate and rage as being these incredibly destructive forces. And so his insistence on mercy and his belief that humans are flawed, but that we can make better choices, I find very heartening. And there's one thing in particular that has been really in my mind a lot recently, which is Virgil has a very famous quote, dux femina facti, which means the woman was the leader of the deed. Mm. And this brings us back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that story of Carthage, because he's referring to Dido the great queen of Carthage, who has led her people out of a tyrannical kingdom and into a new place. And she is forging this beautiful, new, amazing city. She's beloved by her people. Her story actually, sadly, ends in tragedy. But Virgil, before he gets into the tragedy, he shows up Dido as this unbelievable, intelligent, thoughtful, merciful, and kind leader, Dux Femina. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to more of that. Mm. Madeline, it has been one of the pleasures of my whole month getting to sit here and talk to you. And I wish you all good things. And I uh, can't wait to see you when we're able to visit. Oh, thank you so much. This has just been such a pleasure. And Sun Valley was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. So being back with you and with everyone virtually is just a gift. Well, we will see you all in Sun Valley soon, I hope. Anyway, uh, take good care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes, as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations, at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. Mm-hmm.